Podcast Network Asia. This podcast is powered by Podcast Network Asia. For more info on the shows and the network, visit www.podcastnetwork.asia and Podmetrics, the only analytics you'll ever need for your podcast. Sign up now for free at podmetrics.co. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Samir Bhatia the founder and CEO at SME Corner. Samir, thanks for doing this. How are you doing today? Hey, Michael. Uh, privileged to be here. Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. Can you give our listeners a bit of your background for context before we dig in a little bit? Sure. So I'm based out of India. I live in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. I am a chartered accountant by training. Right. I started my career at Citibank. I worked a few years at Citibank, did a variety of things at Citibank, built credit models and uh, some portion of risk and some corporate banking. And then I moved on to be one of the founding members at HDFC Bank, which is today one of India's most reputed and largest bank in India. Nice. Uh, I worked there for almost uh, 13 years and great experience. I ran the the corporate bank, which included, you know, SME business, mid-sized businesses, all kinds of all, all kinds of corporate lending. In 2006, I moved on to be the CEO for Barclays Retail Commercial Bank in India. I was the first employee. I set up the entire operations in India. And when I left in 2009, we had over 100 branches and we were present. We had a pan-India presence. Uh, in 2009, I left to be the to found actually Equifax in India. Equifax, the credit bureau, the yep. U.S.-based credit bureau, had no business uh, establishment in India. And I put together, I sued together the joint venture with some local partners. I got the license from the regulators, and I set up the bureau and I ran the bureau for three years. Post which I decided to, you know, turn entrepreneur. So when I turned 50, I decided that, you know, I had seen enough of the corporate world. And in most of my jobs that I did, the employment that I did, it was all entrepreneurial in any case. Yeah. I was the, the first or amongst the first employees of the company. And hence, setting up something from scratch did not seem that daunting when I embarked upon it. So that's that's my journey. It's been a good five years that uh, I've been at SME Corner. And uh, we have a, we have an interesting business. We lend to small retailers in India. You're based in Thailand, so you know exactly what I'm talking about, exactly. small retail stores. And we are agnostic to sectors, so we lend to all kinds of stores. We lend to, it could be a electric equipment, it could be a plumbing hardware store, it could be a salon, a small eatery, a grocery store, a chemist. Uh, so we lend to that segment. It's an interesting segment because it's an often ignored segment. Banks don't want to lend small ticket in India because of the unit economics. We saw a great opportunity. We've been around now lending. We started as a marketplace and evolved into a lender ourselves. So we've been a lender now for almost three years, and it's been great going for us. We currently operate out of 25 cities in India from four states. 
I wanted to ask you this, right? Because if someone just looks at your resume, you made a really good point actually earlier. If someone just takes kind of a cursory look at your resume and they see the names of big firms like Citibank and Barclays and HDFC and Equifax, they'll just think standard corporate guy. But you make a really good point. You were like the first or second or some number like that employee of all these companies. When you were younger, did you have this kind of entrepreneurial spirit or was that something that just started when you were at Citibank and you're like, I can do this. And then you just moved on to do these other things. Do you know what I mean? So to be honest, I did not know that I could do it uh, until I actually embarked upon it. So at Citibank, though it was a well-established business in India, right. I took upon something which I thought could be done and had not been done before, which is to rewrite the entire credit rating models and the financial analysis models, the way we looked at company financial information, the way we ranked and rated them. And I rebuilt, I built a new system for India. And the system was well appreciated. And I ended up traveling to 17 countries across Africa, Eastern Europe, adapting that model and turning it into a, a larger regional model for Citibank. So that in itself, I turned my job into a kind of a small entrepreneurial business. I own nothing other than my pride there, but it was it was just great to do something and build something. So I guess that was a part of me which I did not know, but which kind of came out as I started working in my job to see things that don't exist and see how to better something that exists or to build something afresh. And, and I'm loving it. Yeah, I mean, the Barclays experience sounds particularly interesting to me, and even Equifax too, but I think it was Barclays where you said you started in, I can't remember the year, 2006, and you were the only employee, yeah. and three years later, there were a hundred and something branches nationwide. When, when you're going through that process, are you sometimes surprised is not the right word, but are you sometimes kind of amazed at like the ability to have so much operational excellence. I was having a conversation with somebody about this yesterday. Having an idea is easy, but actually executing it in a way that's operationally efficient is much harder, right? Yes, that is that is so true. I think one of the things I learned at HDFC Bank was mm-hmm. the big differentiating factor is people and leadership. And I learned early on that if you have the right people in the organization and you set the right culture, uh, it's much easier to execute on something. I would take no credit for doing whatever I've done in life solely by myself. I've always been blessed with a fantastic team, whether it be at HDFC Bank or at Barclays or at Equifax. I've always had very good people working with me. And I feel that, you know, if an organization invests in finding the right people, attracting them, and identifying them up front you know, early in life. And that's what we've done at SME Corner. I mean, every single person in my leadership team today are people who've come from reputed institutions where they are known to have built strong businesses or processes and have run good setups. So when you hire such people, it makes it that much easier to, to execute on something. And if you have good institutional backing, it makes it that much easier. Big bucks always helps, right? Yeah, and look, I think you make, I want to talk about that in, in a little bit as well. But I think you make a really good point. Having the right people in place and that this idea that no one succeeds alone 
is really important. I think you can tell a lot about not just, you know, the CEO, but about the management team when they realize and they don't take credit themselves, when they kind of push that credit down to the people that are actually in the trenches and executing on a day-to-day basis. Because like I said, the management team can have a ton of great ideas, but if there's no one there to execute it, it's hard to get stuff done. Totally. Totally, right? And I think that can can you try to, and this is hard, right? But can you try to explain to me what type of culture you've tried to build at SME Corner so that I can try to understand the type of person that would fit inside? So I think the first and foremost is ethics and integrity. Key, absolutely key to to a good business um, environment. Uh, very clear, and that starts from the leadership, right? So I have to walk the talk, and every single person that I hire comes wetted. Either I've known them personally, or I have very strong references about their ethics and about their integrity. Yeah. I yeah. think it starts from there, because when you're running an organization, when you're working with you know a team and coworkers, it's extremely important to be honest, honest about your thoughts, your feelings, about mistakes you make, and about decisions that you take. And so I think it starts from there. The second is transparency and openness in being able to express what you feel, right or wrong. And that, I feel, is also critical because if you're going to fill your company or your team with with yes men or yes women, it's not going to be helpful at all. Because Mm. if your team is not does not have the liberty to speak up and say, hey, I feel we are going the wrong path here and we need to do something different or you're you're making a mistake, Samir. I feel you should look at it differently. If I did not have people like that, I would not enjoy my work and we would not be where we are today. So I feel that's the second thing. And the third, which I actively encourage my team to do, is self-care, which also means that they need to have a strong work-life balance. I insist that my team take time off and spend time with their family or on themselves. And I try and inspire as many people as I can to stay fit and healthy because it's extremely important. And it also helps in productivity and mental health if you are able to balance your life well and if you are able to devote time to keeping yourself fit, fit and healthy. Yeah. I mean, there are a bunch of myths in the startup world around you know, working 90-hour weeks, giving up everything at the um, at the request of the management team, and just making sure that growth, growth, growth at all costs. And I think you're right. You run into, in some instances where the culture is built incorrectly, that people do have mental health problems. They also have regular health problems. And it kills productivity because they're just not fit anymore, either physically or, or emotionally, to come exactly. in and get work done. Yeah, so you may take off like a rocket and you might be able to put in the first maybe six months, one year, and you might be able to burn yourself out. But I think beyond a point, people will stop you. This will just not have the motivation to go on anymore because, you know, they can't push themselves beyond a point. So I understand some businesses will need 90 hours and I'm not judging anybody. I think everybody has a right to have their, have to, has a right to have their own culture and what works for them best. Okay, but I feel what worked well for us is ensuring that people, you know, have a good balance and people work incredibly hard in the hours that they work. They are extremely productive because, you know, they they are mentally healthy and alert and have had enough 
time to recover from their day's work. So we like to believe that. And I'd like to make the workplace even better. I'm not saying we are perfect. I know there are teams which do spend a long hours in the office. And I, right. I really appreciate that because there are times of the month when business just requires them to be, to be there. So we try and balance as much as we can and ensure people try and have as much time off as they can, as they deserve, rather. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was working at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, and we used to get four weeks vacation every year, and I, I never took a full year's vacation. <laughs> but I'm laughing now. But the, the only reason why I point that out is because the, the follow-on sentence to that is, at the time, you know, was when I was in my 20s and 30s and 40s, I thought I was being a hero. And the reality was I was just being an idiot, right? Like I should have oh, just, well, I should have just taken that time I, off. <laughs> you can't do that, right? Even I did that. Citibank, I have still pride, and I, I boast to my kids saying that you know we worked a hundred days in a row without taking a single day off. Yeah. First Jan to tenth April in the year two thousand whatever. Okay, and or nineteen ninety something. And I'm saying like we never went home, and I attended a hundred days of office, no public holidays, no Sundays. Nothing, and I took extreme pride at having stayed overnight in the office with my toothbrush, at you know, in my early <laughs> years. But, but that was that was the culture of that organization. I think I learned differently at HDFC Bank, where my boss, Mr. Puri, went home at 5 p.m. every day, and I saw that he was one of the most efficient people I've ever known. He got all his work done. He was just this amazing at he knew everything about every ant that crawled in the organization and i realized that you don't necessarily need to be sitting there and you know waiting and burning the midnight oil if there is a smarter way of doing things which is why in sme corner we try and use a lot of ai to do stuff a lot of machine learning to read documents to be able to analyze documents papers so that we can leverage technology. Things are very different now than what they used to be before. We did not have the tools back in the days, but now enterprises can deploy so much of automation and AI to be able to do bulk of the work that used to be done manually. So people need to spend the time more intelligently on strategy and on parts of execution that require the human, uh, uh, human touch. Can I ask you this? Because you, you mentioned your age. You said when I was 50 years old, I decided it just hit me like I just had to leave and I'd had enough of corporate life. Do you think it was yeah. an age-related thing, a time-related thing? Or was there just, again, was there this itch to just say, now that I've built a whole bunch of things from scratch, I want to build it from scratch in the, in the exact way that I want to do it. Does that make sense? So the age, so the age was a good trigger yeah. in the sense that kind of milestone time in your life. Sure. I think uh, the other part was also that I felt I had enough of corporate life and I felt I should do something on my own. And I wanted to do something which was for profit, but also something that would benefit the larger community. Yeah. So I thought really hard and I decided that what can I do which is for profit, but at the same time, and I'm saying for profit so that I can attract investments because the kind of Work I want to do, that is being able to lend money to a large section of the underfinanced, uh, you know, underbanked community requires the pockets, which means investors need to come in with large amounts of money. It right. needs to be for profit because investors have, you know, an obligation to return a particular, you know, profit to their investors as well. Yep. So I said for profit and let me do something for the community. And throughout my banking days, one of the things that hit me hard was whenever a small business person wanted a loan, 
he or she had to run around in circles, wait endlessly for weeks to get a loan approved, right. pay somebody in the middle to a middleman to to get the loan uh, approved, have somebody represent them at the bank and speak, you know, not necessarily the truth to get their loans approved. So it was just so apparent that there was a massive need in the community. And this, what I decided to do really balances both, which means that, you know, what we do will create value for our investors and employees. And at the same time, gives tremendous sense of satisfaction of having served the community in some way. Do you, do you feel differently? I don't want to say when you wake up every morning or when you go to bed every night, but you understand the concept, right? Do you feel differently knowing that you've learned over time, like I said, to have this operational excellence, how to make a profit? You understand the SME market, and I have a few questions about that, but also this idea that you can make a profit but still have a purpose and that you can help these smaller business owners not have to do that runaround to grow their business. Because in the time between when they normally apply to a larger institution and maybe they finally get their money or don't, you know, their business could be at risk because of cash flow reasons of dying, no? Absolutely. It could be weeks before in right. some cases, though things are improving in India. A lot of institutions have gotten much more efficient now and things are changing. Mm. But yes, it's a tremendous sense of satisfaction. And one of the things I am particularly thankful and you know, I have great gratitude is that I've been blessed you know, in my life. And I think that it's a great way for me to, to give back something to the community. And it really gives me a great deal of satisfaction seeing what we've built and what we are building and where it's going because we know that you know, we've reached a very large number. We are already in 25 cities and we see this growing exponentially over the next three to five years. So we feel we'll be able to complete our or to achieve our mission of really getting there to the underfinanced, underbanked community and giving them money with dignity. I think I want to mm, touch upon mm, that mm, because please. just because somebody is somebody's hand is below yours and you're the one giving the money does not make you any superior to them. You Thank need you. them more than they need you. And I think that's an important thing that I tell my team to remember that your customer does not need you. You need them to succeed. So give money with dignity. If you do not want to give money, be upfront. So we run our eligibility checks at the point of contact. We have the apps and we have the, the scorecards to be able to tell with reasonable confidence to a customer that he or she does not qualify or does qualify and save them the bother of going through the humiliation of filling up forms or right, right. giving information and then calling endlessly, getting an IVR at the other end. No human. We've set up branches and a lot of people ask us, why do you have branches? I said, because our business is one of relationship. At the end of the day, we want our customers to feel that they know somebody and there is someone personally looking after their interests. It served us very well because our customers pay us back. You know, likelihood of our customers paying us back is far higher than paying somebody else because they know us personally. Exactly. And it's been proven in COVID times when we've been able to collect this almost everything that customers owe us, despite the hard times, they, I think, prefer to pay us in priority. Right. I want to I make this point explicitly, and you tell me if I'm interpreting this incorrectly. You mentioned earlier using artificial intelligence and machine learning to make things more efficient, and yet you've put branches, you said, in 25 cities. And the reason, I think, for that is, like you said, humans want to interact with other humans at the end of the day. 
And building that relationship means, again, you're much more likely to pay back another human than you are to pay back a machine because of the relationship, not, not because you feel fear or, or anything like that. It's just like, I have a relationship with that lady and I'm going to pay her back. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's really helped us. We also want to sell more products to the customer and right. we want to be the, the one institution they think of whether they want any. Today we do only a couple of types of loans, but in the future we think we'll be able to distribute and work with large institutions to distribute different kinds of loan products. We are going to launch a credit card. So we will do a yeah. lot more and we want the customer to think of us as a one-stop shop or as an advisor who can get them what they want and with, again, with full honesty, complete honesty and transparency. So we want to be that that relationship person. Uh, we do have a digital business which is scaling up, but even when we have a digital business, we do have a human reaching out to every of our customers and speaking with them. And it's not a machine approving a loan and, you know, somebody out of, you know, yeah, look, just automatically doing, yeah. I, I do want to make this point as well. I'm not in any way saying that, as a technology enthusiast myself, that there are not a lot of problems that technology can't solve. But the idea for me has always been, even when I was back sitting on a sales trading desk, is that technology should make your best employees much better at their job, as opposed to completely right. disintermediating them. Because at the end of the day, like I said, right. humans want to talk to humans. Even if, the, even if the human is just giving the advice or giving the information that the machine has told right. them, it superpowers right. people that are good, and it actually takes middle-level people and makes them much better. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to just give you an example, I mean, when we, Please. when our customer sends us financial documents or bank statements, we have a bureau, bureaus report. We have AI reading everything. We have ML reading bank statements, pulling out information, building cash flow models, doing all the, the drudge work, the work that would have otherwise taken a few hours right. for a human to populate, data enter, analyze, build Excel sheets. So we have AIML doing everything in the mid-office and also preparing a set of questions arising out of the documents, patterns of cash flow, patterns of business, trends on businesses. And then we have a human calling the customer and saying that, hey, you know, we've just gone through your documents and we've noticed these few things and we like to chat with you about it. And we find that that builds a great comfort for both of us. I mean, sure. for us, it's good to... To speak with the customer, we understand psychology of the customer. And at the same time, the customer understands that, hey, there is a human at the other end, okay, uh, and I can talk to him or her, and I can also ask a few questions that may be on my mind, which I always wanted to ask. So so it's helpful. So we use a good combination and a good balance of, of technology and touch to see how we can you know, serve our customers better. I want to ask a little bit about building from scratch, one of the things you said earlier was it takes a lot of money to build. And when you and I first spoke, we were kind of joking a little bit about how when you're at a big bank, like when I was at Goldman Sachs, you wanted to build some new technology. You just had like a budgeting process. You just had to convince somebody to give you this kind of mythical three to five million dollars, which happened to be lying around somewhere. <laughs> you know what I mean though, right? What is I totally know that. So, yes. So how do you particularly for startups at, at the earliest stage, but even in the mid-stage, like that infrastructure doesn't exist. So 
How do you fill that infrastructure gap? In other words, not just the tech gap, but like the idea that we have to build stuff and we know we have to build it, but how do we fund it? And then how do you convince everybody else along the way that, look, we're, we're successful, but we don't have an unending amount of resources, right? It's not infinite. So at first, I, it, kind of, it probably took me about three months to adapt to the fact that things were different. Right. Okay, both for me personally, both for me personally, sitting in a corner office, Having, you know, a bunch of staff doing your work for you, right. having an assistant to most of your stuff, and then having, you know, four, two executive assistants running, you know, making decks for you that you need to present to the, to your boss. Doing all of that, and from there sitting by yourself, you know, building a business model. Uh, I struggled a bit with Excel to begin with because it was a long time that I had actually right. done right, right. formulae on, formula on Excel, right? I mean, I used to... I used to see, but I never used to sit and build models, right? So it took me a little bit of time. But the human mind and, you know, we're just so adaptable. I think we adapt to every situation. And that there lies the secret of, you know, a person being successful or not. Either you learn to adapt very quickly and change yourself or you perish. And I'm happy I was able to adapt very quickly to virtually having no resources other than the money I put, you know, as a startup seed capital myself. Right. And I realized that, well, it was tough, but it wasn't impossible. And I did not have money to buy a ready-made system, but I had the money to sit with, you know, a, a software developer or, you know, team, my, then my technology team and say my engineers and design something and say, let's build that ourselves. And we will upgrade as we go further. And we've done that. We built the entire technology suite ourselves. Every single piece in our stack, even today, is something we've built ourselves. It's proprietary. Wow. It's scalable. And we've, we've saved a bunch of money. I mean, think what if we have gone and bought everything that we use today, we would have spent millions of dollars. I don't even think we spent a million dollars in total buying and building whatever we have today. Right. So we, we adapted. I think me and my team, we learned. And the people I hired also came from backgrounds where they worked in large institutions, but they all were aligned to the fact that, hey, this is the amount of money we have. And this is what we need to make with this and build with this money. And uh, it was possible to do it. So it's not, it's not impossible. I was lucky to have a good early stage uh, investor, seed stage investor in the form of Axion Venture Labs. Nice. More about the money, it was a lot of learning that I got for them from them. And uh, it was nice. And I think I've been lucky enough to get good investors along the way. People who, who supported me, taught me and believed in me. Do you also think great um, leaders are good listeners? In other words, they're not so set on the fact that they know everything, but they're willing to listen to sort of alternative ideas. That is so critical, especially in a startup. You might get away if you are, you know, a, a CEO of a formal institution where you can boss people around and you can probably get around for some time. But in a startup where the world is changing so much, there's just so much to learn every single day. I I honestly came from a business background and I knew very little about technology and I had to learn a lot. And it was only because I was very open to admitting that I know nothing. I would tell my team, guys, I know nothing about this. Teach me and tell me what this is about. And it could be a 20, early 20, 22, 24 year old person who could be right, teaching me. Right. And I was more than happy to learn. 
what was going on because it it actually helped me a lot uh, and i say that to a lot of my peers i'm 57 now and i say that to a lot of my peers who are now this is retirement age in india right 58 57 58 is officially retirement age and a lot of i tell a lot of my 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 ex peers and people who are who i worked with and say that you know we have software versions which are version 1.0 2.0 do you not want to be a 2.0 do you want to stay a 1.0 if you stay in a corporate job all your life you're going to be a 1.0 forever, forever. because you'll never learn anything new so unless you turn entrepreneur and you decide to do something you're never going to learn anything different or new and you're never going to be a different version of yourself and i think my 2.0 just ended we are becoming 3.0 now because there's just so much so much more to learn and so much more that we can change in the company and i can change for myself as well uh, that i feel i'm constantly learning so if you have that attitude that and you have the acceptance that you really don't know much in life and that you're willing to listen to people who definitely know more than you or have experience or have academic uh, knowledge which you know is also useful because you know that's what that's what is applied into into your business then you will be a much better leader for sure and those who think they know everything i'm sorry it's going to be a very hard life for them especially with the changing world these days i think the the younger generation the ones in their 20s know far more than you you so people like me have the experience they have the ability to manage teams they right. have the ability to to lead teams to visualize strategize and uh, you know and lead people but the real you know if you if you go down to the grassroots the ability to to learn to to do something you know in in the field especially technology digital marketing it's more the younger folks who know it all and so there's a lot to learn from them do you feel like and i'm surprised actually you said you're 57 i feel old sometimes i just turned 55 but again maybe similar to you the beauty of what i do in a way similar to what you do is that because i get to talk to so many different people running different verticals and building different businesses i feel invigorated i don't know if that makes sense but i feel so much more alive today than i did even 10 years ago because i feel like i'm learning so much more and kind of like you i don't turn down the ability to get information that changes the way i think about almost anything does that make sense totally makes sense i feel i am in my 20s right now to be honest i feel i'm just learning i am just learning so much and when i started off at sme corner i invested some of my personal money right. in attending a large number of workshops and conferences seminars especially the ones that spoke about ai ml and the future of tomorrow and the use of technology and digital in building businesses i felt that was a huge gap in my skill base knowledge base and i invested time and energy in in doing that i also built networks and i want to talk about the power of networks because it's very important to build a set of people who you admire and respect try and reach out to them set up some kind of connect you may not succeed always right but you will succeed with a few people and if you do that you will learn a lot from them and i did that i reached out to a bunch of people I even wrote to Jeff Bezos and he wrote back to me I'm really proud of that and I always say that <laughs> that you know that man had the time to actually it was a, like a short email with wish, wish wishing me luck and saying that 
we'd love to collaborate and write to so and so because I told him I'm starting a business in India and I want to work with Amazon. So I reached out to a large number of people and some of them responded extremely well. And I've built a good set of mentors across the globe who I speak with for 15 minutes, maybe every three months. And I tell them what I'm doing and I ask them what they feel about what I'm doing and what have they learned in their journey. And uh, many of them are younger to me, but they've built great businesses. They've, they've built successful businesses. And so it's important to keep learning. You can learn in many ways. You can learn by, by, by doing courses online. You can attend workshops. You can read. But you can also meet with people and you can also talk to people and learn from them. Their experiences can teach you a lot. How, how big is the SME market from your perspective or the micro lending market, let's just say that, in India? I mean, I know India is a very large country. I know it's very spread out. That much I completely understand. But when you look at it, how much future growth do you think you have there? Because at some point, some of those SMEs are going to become bigger companies and will no longer need micro lending, right? So I'm just curious about what that path looks like. So we are today, we have 10,000 borrowers. The universe for for us, the universe in India of small businesses, the ones that we target, is 30 to 40 million. And not everybody, of course, will be bankable. I think probably more than half will not be bankable and probably another half may not need the money. But there's surely at least 10 million businesses that need money and they are only at 10,000 today. So you can imagine how large the opportunity is. There's just so much place for everyone to operate and grow a large 95% of these businesses have never taken money or don't don't take money from formal lending channels because it was just a big pain right. in the backside to be to reach out to anyone and the trade would normally give them money overnight or instant they all they have to do is pick up the phone sign an iou or even not sign an iou in many cases and somebody would send them the money and uh, there would be a very heavy interest rate. Right, right, the working, right. capital cycle, working capital cycle is small. It's 15 days. And so any money that they get gets turned around 24 times. So if they borrow $5,000, they can generate over $100,000 of sales out of it because money just moves that fast. So they're willing to pay extra interest because for them, the margins are still good and the velocity of cash is just too high right and uh they borrow they were borrowing so they're still borrowing from a lot from the local money lenders and their own trade their own communities communities in india are big lenders by themselves in every community in india there are a bunch of people who are the the more wealthier of them and whose business is to lend to people in their own community I get it. so community lending is big because there is a reputation at stake and people tend to pay back within the community because they want to be relevant and part of the community so there is a social pressure to pay back within the community so the very interesting models in india and we feel that we will not scratch the iceberg even after five years because there's so much business yeah, I mean, for normal business, I would ask if you wanted to expand outside the country. But if there are 30 to 40 million people and you have 10,000 borrowers, it doesn't even make any sense to think about it at some level. Was there some kind of skepticism, right? Because you said a lot of these borrowers were originally considered unbankable, right? That they could not get lending from other institutions. When you finally approach them through the 25 branches that you have, are some of them skeptical that the interest rates are going to be too high for them. And I guess further to that, 
Like, what does it take to convert somebody from that skepticism into the acceptance of, wait a second, this actually makes a lot of sense for me? So let me touch upon the first question that you asked about expanding out of India. So we have been approached by by the big four consulting firms. We've been approached individually by entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia, particularly Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, even Pakistan, to say that, hey, we have similar businesses here. Can we just and you have a technology stack. Can we just take your entire stack and, and set up a business here? Will you license it to us? So we don't do that today, but maybe there's a possibility that in the future we could just license it to somebody who wants to set up. We Makes won't sense. run it, but somebody can run it there and pay us a fee because the models are just so replicable and it's easy to tweak something sure. to local local requirements and customize it. So that's the part of the first first point that you made. The second part is on interest rates and people are willing to pay the interest rates for them money quickly in their hand is very important so there is not so much skepticism we rarely we do face obviously every good business person wants to haggle about interest rates and pay as less as possible so customers do argue and they do try to bargain and there's a big bargain market right so it's silent for that matter so unless you bargain, you don't feel you've done, you made a good purchase. You have to bargain if you want to feel good about it. So people do try and bargain, but eventually they're willing to pay reasonable interest rate for two reasons. One is as long as they're getting money in their hand. And second, it builds their credit history. They know that if they start borrowing from a good lending institution, their reputation in the in the lending community starts going up. And their payment track record starts getting reflected in their bureau. And everybody understands the bureau. And they know that if they, they do a couple of cycles with a good borrower, a good lender, they can actually get much more money in the future for their growth and expansion. A recognition that a bureau is important. And my I, if I borrow formally from the community, from the lending community, uh, it will be beneficial to me is well known. And hence, uh, the skepticism is lower now. Got it. When you when we first started this conversation, you said when I think when SME Corner first started, it was more of a marketplace, and now you've turned into a lender on your own. Is there a regulatory difference between what those two things are? Does that mean you get regulated more like a bank, or like what does that environment look like to you? Oh yeah, so we need we need a non banking finance company license to be a lender. So we are regulated by the central bank. Our previous business was not a regulated business. So now there is more compliance and uh, there is more reporting and we are subject to more regulations than we were before, but it's not onerous. It's, it's perfectly... Yeah, I was just curious. It have, it's have a good be, place. Yeah, it doesn't it's have a, to be onerous. Right? No, no, it's, no, no, it's a good place to go. It's a good, India is a good market to operate. The regulators are, are reasonable. Uh, there will always be demands from the community to, to do more and they are getting more... Uh, they're recognizing the, the the fintech space, and they are willing to to adapt and you know continually monitor and issue guidelines. So it's it's a it's a good it's a good environment, regulatory environment to work in. So I like this. It's, thing. it's not we've never felt it to be an, a, a huge burden. No. just because we are regulated, I think it all stems from the fact that if you are if your governance standards are good, personal right. governance standards are good, you shouldn't care. and you. Do not want to do not want to tweak or cut corners, and you make that clear in the organization that not one thing should be out of place. If this is the law, this is the law. It doesn't matter what it takes to 
to obey it then it's not it's not onerous then it's it's your normal it's it becomes a your your day to day process or life and it's not really that hard i i completely agree with you like i i i agree with you like particularly from a regulatory perspective just go out and do it it's not really in the way just like get it done i wanted to ask you a little bit more about technology right because you and i again are pretty close to the same age but i also noticed that there's on your website it has this thing like apply via whatsapp and i i'm always curious about how those types of decisions get get made in other words some young your lady comes to you and says we should have this thing on whatsapp and the senior management says what's whatsapp kind of thing right? no 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 this actually was born out of covid we oh, really? designed and developed this in covid because uh, uh, earlier there was a lot more physical interaction possible and in covid times <laughs> we said uh, let's try the best way to communicate with customers nothing beats whatsapp right because people use that so much it's so deeply integrated in personal lives Absolutely. now that uh, people feel most comfortable replying texting sending photographs uploading documents doing anything because they yes. do that in their personal life right. and so we launched this button last month in fact in september and it's a huge hit it's uh, we getting inundated with loan applications on whatsapp when we had it as a website uh, journey and we still have it and despite spending time money effort on ui ux trying to make it you know most convenient you know trying to reduce the friction <laughs> it still did not have as much success or does not have as much success as the whatsapp button has so if i send you if you click on the whatsapp button it opens a whole conversation on chatbot conversation on whatsapp and you can complete your loan application you can take a photograph of your document you can upload it and we are almost done and that we are finding is is an exponential growth will will be a huge channel for us and uh, customers are not it's not we don't have to teach them anything right i mean it's just so easy to reply and it's all it's all multiple questions and it's all a nice journey that is built into the whatsapp we're still refining it and making it sharper it'll take us another 3 months to get this like 100% right but it's it's been a great experience for us and so also for our customers i love it. it it do you have more time because i've got a couple of more things you just brought up something that i want to ask you earlier and you just reminded me again if you're out there you know the further away you get from bigger cities the the less experience you have not you but the, the your clients have in the lending experience at some level do you have to educate them on sort of what the implications are now i understand money velocity right so i get that completely in other words if you lend them $100 but it turns over 24 times and they have a what do you say 15 day window for their accounts receivable i can't remember the exact words you use so i understand that but are there some people out there that actually are running a business that's potentially bankable but they don't know how the whole thing works is there an educational process that has to take place as well not the set of customers we reach out to Got because it. Okay. most established stores and i think they they they're fairly very smart uh, also what's happened is the younger generation has started getting into businesses and they are the earlier lot used to be largely uneducated and i'm not saying they were not sharp they were no, no, very no, no. sharp no 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 people. not my okay. education it's, well, yeah. academic education has nothing to do with your agreed uh, completely agreed okay. completely extremely Look. sharp but now the now the newer generation is coming into business and they are all educated so they understand 
financial calculations also and they we don't have to teach people don't have to teach people anything but what the language they 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 know better is that if i take a 100000 rupee loan how much is the amount i'll have to pay every month exactly interest rate is not relevant i have to tell them you will pay me 3000 rupees every month or 5000 rupees every month for the next 3 years okay so then he will think and say okay 5000 a month uh, then he does his own math and he says yes i can afford to pay you 5000 a month for 100000 of loan i'll take the loan right and so the effective interest rate in their mind is more on affordability of the of taking the loan and not as much as you know exact interest rate there are some of course who who want that number to be a nice small number so it's good uh but it's fine we want customers to understand why they are taking and what they are taking and whether they are, otherwise they won't be able to repay us if we start forcing money down people who don't understand what a loan op- and how a loan operates we won't get our money back no 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 they no. won't know back as well and so for us you know till date we've been we've been lending largely to those who've taken a loan before from a lending institution It does not have to be a large loan it could be any loan it could be to buy a scooter it could be to buy a television set it could be a really small tiny loan but the fact that they've taken a loan before gives us comfort and there is again within this population of 40 million there is a sizable number who've taken one small loan before or we like send to those who've never taken a loan before what the ones we don't lend to are the ones who've taken a loan but not repaid so our only excluded community today is the ones who taken a loan but have delayed or defaulted or everybody else qualifies got it and look i want to be clear about the the genesis of the question my grandfather left school when he was um 7 years old and ran mm. multiple successful businesses so to me the equivalency between how educated you are and your level of business acumen is not necessarily oh. correlated in fact i feel sometimes that the ones who have not done a formal education have a higher ability to take a risk in life because they don't always equate everything to a financial model that is running in their head exactly they understand understand the business far better without complicating their lives by trying to run various excel models on whether this will work or that will work and their ability to take a risk is far higher so i've seen that the businesses which are successful and they've been built by the earlier generation are built by those who haven't formally gone to a school and yet they run phenomenal businesses and they can rattle and calculate any <laughs> any any number of permutation combinations without using a calculator or without using anything their brain just works brilliantly without any kind of computer or any kind of uh, calculator so yeah. yeah i mean my my guess is that if you had asked my grandfather if he could do mathematics he would have said no because he never had a formal yeah. mathematical education and yet if you asked him like you said if i give you this loan and you have to pay this amount of money he could see him calculating in his head so he could definitely yes, do it exactly. but he just didn't know that he was doing it so i'm sure That's right. pretty standard, right? Oh, well, that it was called math, right? Yeah, exactly. Business, so yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Okay, look, this was really really great. I I want to let you go because I've taken up way too much of your time. I really want to thank you Samir Bhatia for coming in and doing this. The founder and CEO at SMA Corner. This was awesome. Thank you. A great conversation. Look forward to hearing it.